Amy? One of the things that uh, we did with our kids when they were growing up is we exposed them uh, and let them swim into the deep waters of C.S. Lewis and all things Narnia. We had the whole series on, um, uh, on audio. And so whenever we got in the car, there was going to be some scene out of Narnia playing out. And presence and out of fear and fatigue, he just cries out uh, with no strength to even run away from this dark presence. He says, in this terribly British and whiny voice, he says, I am so unlucky. And the voice of Aslan out of the woods cries back to him. And I wish I had this really good Liam Neeson type voice, but he says, well, why are you so unlucky? And the boy goes on through this list of all of the terrible things that, well, I'm an orphan. And then I was abducted by this abusive fisherman. And then our ship ran ashore. And then I was chased through the woods by four different lions. And then I had this mistaken identity. And here I am lost again with you. And Aslan says, well, I don't think that you're unlucky. And then he says, because it was I who blew your ship ashore to save you and to bring you closer so that you might find your companions. It was I who chased you through the woods so that you could reconnect and go alert the king. It was I who, and he just went through this list and matched him point for point. And the point that I'm trying to raise is I think we all find ourselves with a glass half full approach when it comes to the presence of God. We have this tendency to miss God in all of his subtleties because we're looking for God's grandeur and somehow these parting of the Red Sea moments. And so I would like to encourage you to reconsider how you experience both the highs and the lows. And I think what happens is, is we get so focused on what isn't happening that we miss what God's actually doing in terms of his provision, his protection, his sustaining us, his encouragement, and how he's already present in every area of our lives. So, friends at home, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles, and if you're here today, and maybe you want to follow along, because there's a longer passage that I want to look at. In fact, I would encourage you, over the next several weeks, if not a couple of months, we're spending eight weeks looking at the theology of Plan B through the eyes of Joseph. Joseph was someone who was, um, he was really immature. He was really arrogant. He was one of the youngest of, of the 12 sons, but he was hated by his brothers so much so, and we heard Damaris introduce us to this character last week, that his brothers first throw him in a pit and in an act of mercy decide, no, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery. And so they get taken up by this band of Ishmaelites, they end up in Egypt, and now this, this privileged son, the favorite son, is now purchased as a slave to a man by the name of Potiphar. 
So as we dive into Genesis 39, and over the next several weeks, you might want to read Genesis 37 through 50. If you just follow the arc of Joseph's life, I am so confident that you will be able to resonate with chapters of your own life. So what I want to ask you is, how are you finding God in unexpected and challenging situations? There is this fundamental flawed belief that we have that the center of God's will must be the path of least resistance, to which I would say, if that's actually true, Jesus would have never ended up on the cross. Just because things get really hard, super challenging, entirely defeating, doesn't mean God is void from those moments, those chapters of our lives. So the question is, how are you and I learning to discern the presence of God in the beauty and the hard? That's where we find Joseph. And we have a huge temptation. So if my sermon today has any one title, it's finding God in the both and. You know the both and. We typically think that if it's good, it must be God. If it's bad, it must be not. And I'm saying we can find good in, in, in God in both situations. So here we have this, this kind of chapter unfolding. This is the theology of plan B that I want us to do a kind of evaluation of our own lives so that we can go through the challenges and the hardship of life and sort of take a pulse. Is my circumstances causing me to lose traction with my intimacy or my faith in what God is actually doing? Do I actually feel more distant because I'm not getting my way or because life got harder? Or am I able to discern that God's actually present and in very particular ways, albeit maybe subtle, right? So here he finds himself inside. No, I have to imagine, doubtless, after he kind of gets sold into slavery, purchased a power, there's going to be moments where for sure, Joseph actually prays, God help, deliver me from this. And I would say, well, God did help, but God didn't deliver, which is a really important distinction. God wants to hear your prayer. God wants to answer your prayer. It might not be in its entirety or how you would have hoped, right? But it doesn't mean that God is not present. So look at how God is present in the plan B of Joseph's life. He's enslaved uh, that, uh, that God used to mature him, to refine his character, and eventually to leverage his gifts. And the trials were all part of God's, what I call, fitness plan for his own growth, but for everyone's salvation. Because what would eventually come would be a global famine of which the world has hardly ever seen. And Joseph was God's instrument to bring salvation, to bring relief. So if God had not allowed for Joseph's years of struggle and suffering, he would have never become such a powerful agent of social justice and spiritual healing. Was God in the slavery? 100%. Was that, was that plan A for Joseph? No. Was it even plan A for God? I don't think so. These were some corrupt, jealous, older brothers full of hatred. But is God out of control? No. 
So here's where we find ourselves in, in Genesis chapter 39. And so what we find is that in order to experience God, we have to take this both-and approach regardless of our circumstances. So Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, this, uh, the guy that buys him is the name Potiphar. And he was the chief of the guard. Highly powerful, highly wealthy, uh, very influential, and, and this is who buys him into his household. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Wait, wait, wait. You mean I can prosper when I'm in captivity? I can prosper when I'm being oppressed? Mm-hmm. The Lord was with him. That's why. Were circumstances ideal? No. Did he have all the freedom in the world? No. Was God with him? Yes. Did his life prosper? Yeah. Let's look at how. And he lived in the house of this Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household. He entrusted to his care everything that he owned, which was a lot. And so you can argue like, wow, how could this be plan A? How could this be God's will? Except God did not distance himself. God was still present in these moments. And so Joseph is living his best plan B life right here. He's a slave and God's with him, right? He's captive and he's blessed. Really important distinction. And too often we miss God in the both and because we're, we're, we're so hungry for the either or. Well, it would be better if these things weren't happening too. Well, my life would just be better if I could experience this. <clears throat> Except that we, we, we fail to see God in the present, right? Well, can I have my cup right there? Sorry, I'm just needing a little sip to keep going here. Um, and so Potiphar was captain of the guard and all, all of Egypt, which was the global military superpower of the day. So this guy's got a lot of clout. And what happened? He became promoted. He became personal attendant to his, <clears throat> in charge of his whole household. And the role would eventually prepare him for further opportunities. So the question is, is whatever you're going through today, what do you think might God want to do through you later? I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what your obstacles are. I don't know what your failure feels like today. All I'm saying is God is present and God is at work. And to the extent that we can see God in it, we know that God's preparing us for more. And it's for his salvation, right? And so yet something happened that wasn't ideal, but doesn't mean that God's absent or can't redeem it. In Joseph's case, he was faithful, he was bright, he was winsome, he was high character, he was immature, um, he was sort of arrogant, and he kind of touted these things about his brothers and his family all bowing down to him. They're like, are you kidding me? We don't even like you, let alone going to bow down to you. And yet, things in life kept taking dramatic turns for the worst. Has God forsaken him, or is this part of the story, God's story? Verses 6 through 8. 
Here's where we see him kind of unpacking, settling into the household. He's been promoted. He's taking on more responsibility. He's got servants working under him. And then Potiphar's wife takes notice. And for some of you who have grown up around church or understand this, you've heard this story before, but it's really important to identify that it's not an either or, but God's in a both and scenario. So in the midst of temptation, God shows up. Sometimes we think, oh, my life would be better if I could just overcome this. Well, let me just tell you, I don't think you'll ever overcome that thing. But God can be faithful in the moment. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I, I hate that when that happens, right? And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come here to bed with me. But he refused. And with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. And this is what I would call, ready, the shadow side of strength. You, we all come in today with a certain amount of gifts, with blessing, with strengths. But underneath all of those things are going to be shadow sides, things that we still have to manage. So in Joseph's case, look at the things, this is the both-and dilemma. If you look at his life and, and just consider, can you think of a downside to being blessed? Well, I know a lot of really wealthy people who feel or, or appear to be very, very unhappy. I know poor people who have an incredible level of contentment and gratitude and joy. So what we start to see is there is this shadow side of every strength. And look at Joseph's life. He was good looking, he was successful, but it also made him a target. If he wasn't head of the household, do you think his wife would have taken an interest in him? Probably not. He had power, which meant he also needed to keep up the character in which uh, to not lose himself. I mean, power has the ability to corrupt, does it not? And here we find him with this both-and dilemma. He'd been abused, which also meant he needed to manage his own heart. In other words, he was going to have to contend, despite being resentful, how am I going to extend God's grace? How am I going to be an agent of forgiveness? This is the both-and dilemma. He was talented, which meant he'd also, get this, for talented, educated people, still need to learn to trust and depend on God not think that somehow all that you have is because of all that you've provided for yourself. This is the both-and dilemma. And this is what God wants to do through some of our struggle, through some of our hardship, through some of the, the, the sort of learning curve of life, is that can we find God in the both-and? I think God's completely present in the both and, even though we try and remove a certain set of circumstances, if it could only be this way, it might be a little bit better. And I'm saying, no, this is the good life. This is the good stuff right here, right now. So somewhere along the way, Joseph just becomes rooted in God's presence beyond his own circumstances. And this is a really good tale for some of us to consider. Well, he flees. He does the right thing, but not before losing his britches. I don't know what it's like to be in a robe-wearing, agrarian society, but he loses his robe. The flowing robe comes off in sort of the heat of the moment. And I don't know if he was like the original streaker going out of this huge estate, but 
she's got like the dirt on him. She's got evidence that he was there unrobed. And so she outs him and he ends up in prison. Did God divorce him? Did God break up with him? Is God mad at him? No. God is in the moment. And so now he finds himself imprisoned. Um, and it would be very tempting to go, well, it was now finally God's turned him back, his back on me. Except he hasn't. And this is where Aslan's quote, why do you see yourself as unlucky? Why do you see yourself as so unfortunate? Have I not cared for you all along the way? And I think we could all create equal lists of hard, bad, unregrettable things, um, things that we'd never want to repeat, and then blessings and gratitude and thankfulness. We could come up with those equal lists. And what I'm simply suggesting is God's in both. And it's on us to, to find him. But in verse 21 through 24, we find him now in prison for doing absolutely nothing wrong. If anyone had the ability to play the victim card, the poor me card, the self-pity card, it's Joseph. Oh, my stupid older brothers. <sighs> I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. <sighs> that stupid, lustful wife. She got me in jail now. And it'd be very easy to sort of turn your fist and shake it at God, even though you've been the faithful one all along. And here's where we find, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. See, this is why I like to have my Bible with me, because that's something super important to go ahead and highlight or underline a few times over. Wait, wait, wait. He was in prison and God was with him. And I'm thinking, Many people, if not every single one of us, are living in some kind of conditional prison. We live in prisons of self-pity. We live in prisons of deceit. We live in prisons of greed and of lust and of addiction. We live in prisons of pleasure. And God wants to free us because God's in that prison too. Did God intend for Joseph to be there? No. Did God intend for us to be there? No. Is God gone? No. We need to start finding God in the middle of our hell on earth experiences. He's in prison and the Lord was with him. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 22. So the warden put Joseph in charge of those he held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay, now if I had to choose to be an attendant or a leader in someone's household, I'd rather be in Potiphar's household, like calling out orders, than like the prison, like the warden's attendant. But what we see is the faithfulness of God despite the hell on earth experiences. Joseph is leaving his best plan B life. And I would contend that so are we. Is everything we've done according to God's will? Probably not. Is everything we've done in alignment with what God had hoped for? Probably not. Is God divorced from our, our presence? Absolutely not. See, um, we have this moment where uh, 
there are, there are more things that God wants to prepare us for. There's more things to come. And this is what we see in Joseph's life. It meant more challenges and it meant more letdowns. It meant more heartache. It meant more delayed gratification. Because remember, the promise was in this dream that came to him that everyone's going to be bowing down. Well, where's that promise, Lord? When are you going to show up and be faithful and be who you said you're going to be? As if, like, we're entitled and why, why does it feel like my life is like two steps forward and three steps back? Really? I'm a slave? Okay, cool. I'm an attendant. Wait, I'm in prison? Okay, cool. Like, I'm the warden's go-to. But, Lord, what, what do you, you promise that everyone's going to bow down. What was that all about? Was it that, like, everyone, like, simultaneously tripped and I was the only one who didn't trip? What, what is that imagination about? And so this is where I feel like God is, is in the both hand. Now, um, as I was thinking about this prison assignment and this story, I was reminded of, of the person, the kind of the most modern day martyr that we have in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him. Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian during World War II, and he joined the resistance movement at, at the peril of his own life. Um, he saw more and more churches caving in to the Nazis, uh, and aligning with their party, and he said, hell no. This, this, this is hell on earth. This is not what God intended, even to the point of throwing his name into the assassination attempt, the Valkyrie attempt. You've heard, you've seen the movie. This was part of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was committed to, to doing, just to stopping this madman. But what happens to Bonhoeffer is he's part of the resistance in World War II, and he is so passionate about Christianity, um, not as this otherworldly faith, but taking the literal words of Jesus in the most serious and passionate way. And so he lived his life with this daily sort of conviction of obedience and faithfulness despite circumstances not working out. And so he even found himself at Union Theological Seminary and with such unrest said, I can't stay here. I have to go back to Germany because when this thing's over, who am I to give spiritual leadership to the people that I got away from during the war? And so he went back and it was within a short time that he was arrested and he was imprisoned. And in, in prison, he starts doing all of this ministry work and he does all of this writing and he eventually gets hung. After the Nazis knew that they were defeated, they just started like going down their most wanted list and let's eliminate them. So two days before the actual official end of the war, he loses his life in one of these concentration camps. But what's interesting is Bonhoeffer had the same effect that Joseph had while he was in prison. I don't know if Bonhoeffer actually read Genesis 39 like we're reading today, um, but he has this moment where as he's going through and living, Joseph starts to warm up and, uh, to the guards and his warm and his Christ-like spirit impressed the guards and they just began to endear themselves to him. And as a result, they allowed Dietrich Bonhoeffer to visit other prisoners who were in despair. It, they allow them to bring comfort. They allowed him to be the pastor that he was and show up in this concentration camp with these Nazi soldiers. And it was actually the Nazi soldiers 
who were able to smuggle out a lot of the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer so that his legacy lives on today, which sounds a whole lot like God in the presence, in, 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 in the midst of utter and total darkness. I want to watch just like a three-minute video and just give you a glimpse of what Bonhoeffer was doing at that time as we wrap up. In the case of opposition, Nazi Germany stands as one of the most formidable examples. Many may think the church disappeared during this chapter of Germany's history, but the Lord's remnant remained. The confessing church opposed the teachings of the government-approved churches that aligned with the anti-Semitism of the Nazi party and even removed the Old Testament from their Bible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer a pastor and theologian during World War II, was a vocal member in the Confessing Church and a protector of underground seminaries that trained pastors. He is known for conspiring in a plot to assassinate Hitler, leading to his execution only months before the end of the war. What many do not know, however, is that Bonhoeffer could have avoided all opposition. In 1938, Bonhoeffer arrived in the United States for the Union Theological Seminary in New York. He soon wrote to a friend, I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. He then returned to Germany to take his stand, not only against the Nazi regime, but against the enemy attacking the Church of Jesus Christ within Germany's borders. When Bonhoeffer was eventually imprisoned, he waited for a year and a half to go to trial. Even in his prison cell, Bonhoeffer continued to spread the gospel among prisoners and guards. His cellmate wrote that his soul really shone in the dark desperation of our prison. His decision seven years earlier to return to Germany to stand firm with his brothers and sisters in Christ had led him to his death, but his death was not in vain. Who stands firm? Only the one for whom the final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all these when in faith and sole allegiance to God, he is called to be obedient. What Bonhoeffer did was embrace his life of plan B. This was not plan A. And the beauty is, is that God is found in unremarkable or unpreferred situations. And I think there's a depth of intimacy, there's a depth of knowing when we can begin to discern God's presence in the hard and the good. We wanna close with just a worship song together and let me just kind of lead us through a prayer time. God, I'm aware that a lot of us have maybe live with some unmet expectation of who you are, maybe in who you aren't. Um, I pray that in some ways you would heal our understanding of who you are. Pray that we would understand your names. Uh, I thank you for your faithfulness, but I pray for a growing awareness of your presence, that we might discern what you're doing in all things. 
even things that you didn't intend, we know that you're still in control. We thank you for your sovereignty. And I pray that in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, that you would deliver us from prisons that limit our joy and our gratitude and our awareness of what you're doing amidst us. Help us to see you in the good and the hard. Help us to call an audible in life and be able to pivot in a way that responds to your spirit. Strengthen us in hard times, in down times, in weak times, so that we might realign our lives and you would use us for your good and for your glory. Help us to see that which you're putting us through now so that we can have a vision for what you want to do in us and through us in the days to come. I pray this for myself, for my friends, for our church as we come out of COVID, as we revamp and try and discern a way forward, that you would align our hearts for your plans and for your purposes in the midst of a country that's in discord and struggling, that you would help find a way forward. Even though we are living in a world that you created, it's not what you intended. So we pray for your guidance in our lives. We pray for your Holy Spirit to lead us. In Jesus' name.